Jesus, you are good. We are here for you. We don't just want good music or a good sermon. We are here to hear from a good God. I pray today we would encounter your presence. I pray today you would challenge us, you would inspire us, and you would call us to be different. Amen? You can be seated. Now I know everyone here is immediately wondering one thing. You have one question. Why are there trees on stage, right? Why is there a 24-foot cross in the middle of the stage? That's a good, it's a good, uh, no, well, no one does yet. We, you know, we've been, we've been having a lot of fun this summer as we've been talking about who God made us to be. Who is he and what he's calling us to. And as we've been praying through this, God has been calling us to a new kind of series for this fall. So we have a six-week series we're kicking off today. And, and I called um, Eric. He did, he's the host up here earlier. And he's kind of this creative mad scientist guy. And I, I told him my vision for the series. And I told him what I wanted. And I told him about this cross on the stage. And, and there was silence on the line. And then he said, are you sure it's going to be big enough? So here we sit in the fall series with a giant cross, and I still have not answered your one question that you're wondering. Why? Why did you put it up there? And why a huge cross? I mean, some of you came in today, and you walked in, and you had your coffee, and you looked up and saw it, and you thought, oh, and it touched you. It meant something so good. Some of you walked in today with your coffee, and you went, oh. Someone walked in today, and said, nope, and left. <laughs> you know, our experience, what we've been through, our experience with religion and religious people dictates how we interact with this in a big way. And so for some of you, whatever the, the spectrum of emotions is, you're here today thinking like, we have to look at that thing for six weeks, or finally, they got a cross big enough in this place. Whatever it would be, we are here for a purpose. So why the cross? Because I want to take some time, six weeks, to talk about exactly what happened at the cross. I want us to pull aside and look at this cross and what, what happened upon it. And what does it mean for us now? It's important. You see, this series is here to bring clarity to the central moment of history. In fact, the central moment of this thing called Christianity that's been hijacked and people wave the Christian flag. But what, what is the central moment of it? What is the cross? You see, the cross is the central significant moment for all humanity. Because what happened on the cross changed everything. Now, I want to clarify something. The cross isn't important or special because it's a cross. You know, if, if someone from um, Jesus' day and age or a Roman came in here from those days and age, they would be appalled that we have a tortured and death device on stage. I mean, this would be like us having an electric chair behind the sermon the whole time. See, the cross in itself isn't important. The cross is important because of who was on it. The cross is important because of what happened upon it. And so, what happens on the cross, it changes everything for us. What happened on the cross has the dynamic power to change your past, transform your present, and your future destiny. The cross is important. So we're going to pull aside and look at it. Now, as a church, this series is very important for us. You see, in the orchard, we are growing in size, and we have new people coming each week to come and check this whole thing out, and we have actually religious veterans making fresh new decisions. And 
I just had a conversation out there at the coffee bar with somebody who told me the story in the last month and a half how their life has been radically changed in a way I have not heard as a pastor before. And I can't wait for you to hear it. God is moving. God is working in our lives. And he's calling you to change. He's calling your friends to change. But this series is important because not only do we need to, as we grow bigger, God is calling us to grow stronger and to grow deeper into Jesus and his word. It's important. We need to grow up in some ways. And this series calls us to maturity and to growth. Now, I know that sounds great to a lot of us, but I just want to say we don't like growth as much as we think we do. We don't. Do you remember when you were a little kid and you'd wake up in the middle of the night with a shooting pain in your leg and you'd wake up and you'd go, Mommy, Daddy. They would come in the room and they would comfort you and they would tell you that what you are spontaneously experiencing at two in the morning is something called growing pains. That your body's growing and that's why it's hurting. And oftentimes growth, personal growth, comes with growing pains. And where there's pain, what do we do? Well, we want to avoid those things. But there's something growing. There's some growing ahead of us that we need to be stretched in and challenged in. And in fact, I would bet if you look back on your life story, you would say the times that you you grew the most weren't when it was easy sailing. It was when you went through dark valleys. It's when you came through dark seasons and your faith was refined and your heart and your emotions and your mind, your thoughts, maybe your body, maybe your career, maybe whatever kind of valley you came through, you grew through the dark valley. That the growing happened with some growing pains. I'm going to say some things this series that's going to make us feel uncomfortable. I want to let you know that right now but only because our culture, our culture has taught us something. Our culture has taught us that eternal truths are determined not by an eternal and divine God. That eternal truths are determined by how we feel about them. You see, in the new culture, our feelings are dictating our faith. If there's a teaching that I don't feel good about, if I don't like the way it feels, well, it must not be true for me. I don't reject it based on whether it's true or false. I reject it solely based on how I feel about it. I want you to know this only works in faith. This only works in spiritual discussion. This does not work in real life. I mean, could you imagine you're driving down Snowmass and I get pulled over for speeding? And I'm speeding. And I'm sitting there. And how does it feel when you get pulled over? Innocent or guilty, what's that feeling? I got caught, oh no. And I'm sitting there in my car, and the officer, she walks up, and she informs me that I've been speeding, and she writes me a citation. But it doesn't feel good to me. In fact, I don't think this is how a loving God would want me to feel right now. So I tell her, I'm glad you found your truth, and I respect that. But my truth, I was not speeding, and I am not getting a ticket. And in that moment, you would find out that there is truth that does not concern itself with how you feel. And that's important. 
See, this doesn't work in parenting or marriage or work or real life. But for some reason, when it comes to these huge eternal questions and beliefs, my feelings on the matter are probably all that's needed. We say things like, I found my truth, and I'm glad you found yours. And to dive right into the deep end, and just let's get uncomfortable to dive right in. I'm glad you found your path, because all paths lead to the same place. It's, it's prevalent. It's probably prevalent in this room. And some of you are already feeling, ugh. <laughs> I didn't come for that. See, when we say that all paths lead to one place, we miss something. Our feelings have made a decision that make Jesus' sacrifice on the cross trivial and pointless. When we choose to let our feelings decide that, hey, everything's good, all things lead to one place, we miss that that is completely incompatible with the very words of Jesus himself. So who's right? Is Jesus right or are my feelings right? More likely what I'm going to do is I'm going to go with my feelings because that feels better. And I'm just going to pretend Jesus didn't say those things. Or if he did, he didn't mean it that way. Churches hijacked it. In fact, when it comes to the Bible, I can go through here and go, oh, that feels really good. This is true. Oh, nope, that is not true because I don't feel like it. And here's the deal. It's not true for now because my feelings might change in a year and then it could be true. My faith is following my feelings. But it feels good to say. It removes the sting of having to to think or say, there's one way. There's one way, and it's Jesus. And so the question is, as we get into this, how do we reconcile our faith when Jesus, the Son of God, himself claimed there is one way, yet our culture and our own feelings don't like that? How do we reconcile these things? the easiest thing to do would be to stop coming. And that's the one thing I'm going to ask you not to do. I'm going to ask you to journey with us. I'm going to ask us to journey together. I'm going to make a deal with you. You're going to hear some things that challenge your faith. But I want you to commit to coming and checking out these next five weeks. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to feel okay emailing me any question you have. Let's, this, this actually whole series just might start a dialogue. And as we start growth groups, that's another great place to go have a dialogue about it. But let's not just skip out. Let's have a dialogue. These things are important. So, we're going to pray in a minute. We're going to pray and ask God to reveal himself to us. Because what we want, I would say, more than what I want more than anything, is not my truth or a feeling truth or some truth or all truth. I want the truth. If there is a God who created the universe and there's capital T, absolute truth out there, he created the universe with certain spiritual guidelines and truths. I want to know what he, the divine God, thinks about it. And there's been times where it hasn't gelled with my emotions. And I've had to deal with that. I want to know what God has to say and what he feels. Because I said I've come up to places in my life where he has revealed that my feelings are pulling my faith, if it was a train. My feelings are leading the whole thing. And so my faith goes wherever I feel like, whatever feels good or avoid what feels bad. And God has asked me to put my faith first and let my faith lead my feelings. And that's a hard adjustment to make. And there's two groups of people I want to talk to this, this morning. 
and throughout this, this series. There's the first group that are guests of ours, or people who've been coming, but you would say, and you would admit, um, I have not resolved my issues with Jesus. I don't know about this whole church thing. I don't know if I believe that he is who he says he is. And I want you to feel the freedom to come and seek and find what you need without any judgment on our behalf. The portrait is a safe place. There's room for everybody. We love God and we love people in this room and out of this room. And you can come here and disagree with me and we love you. It's fine. I want you to come to the orchard and be able to come and, and find the answers you need. Investigate. And my hope is that through this series, you will get a crystal clear understanding of, of more of who God is. Of what, what happened on the cross and what does it mean for you. So stick with us in this series. We're talking about some pretty heavy things, some good, some glorious things. And I want you to know something. There is a big difference between the religion you have experienced in your path and the relationship that Jesus calls you to because of the cross. There is a big difference between the religion you've experienced in the past and the relationship that Jesus calls you to because of the cross. So, the second group is those of you who are in this room who've resolved that Jesus is the way. It could be 40 years ago at youth camp, you came forward and threw a stick in the fire and gave your life to Jesus. It could be last week, whatever it was. But you, you would say, Jesus is my Savior. I want, I want you to, to, to be open to reinvestigating, once again, the foundation of your faith. Don't ignore it. Don't go, ah, that's, 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 that's one-on-one stuff. We want to reinvestigate the foundation of faith. And I want you to be open to be re-inspired and re-challenged by what the cross says. I want you to look for those places that you have allowed the culture and your feelings to dictate your faith. And let's see what God says about it. So, with that, I want to pray for us this morning. That God would give us divine truth. That he would lead us in these times. That's what we want. And so for those of you here in the room and those listening online, if you would pray out loud, repeat after me. God, I want to hear from you. I'm here with my own experiences. Feelings and judgments. But what I need most is your truth. Speak to me today. Holy Spirit, reveal truth to me. Jesus, I want to know you. Amen. And with that, we should probably start a sermon. I want to start by telling you a story um, that started in Genesis, right at the beginning of the Bible. See, in Genesis, there's two trees. And I'm going to talk about these two trees. They were planted there in the beginning. And one was the tree of knowledge, and one was the tree of life. Now, first, let's look at the tree of knowledge. Because knowledge sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, a tree that teaches you things. That's amazing. The tree of knowledge. But God made it clear that we were to avoid this tree. Now, Why? Why would God want us to avoid knowledge? Well, I want to say this. It's not so that we would, we would remain ignorant. It's so that we would remain innocent. You see, there are those who say knowledge is not bad. All knowledge is good. Well, I say to them, you know, give, give your elementary school child an iPad and tell them you have six months of unsupervised access to the internet. And I want you to go and find every website. I want you to just go into all the knowledge the internet has for you. Go in every forum, every chat room, every political thing this. Go on 4chan, go on YouTube, go in the cesspool of some other places. But go find all the knowledge out there. Because it's good. Right? See, no parent, no loving parent would do that. 
Knowledge is not our highest virtue. In fact, we would say that, that wisdom is a higher virtue. It tells us which knowledge to even engage with. Self-control and purity tell us which knowledge to maybe not even get near. So there's this tree that God instructed us to avoid. Jesus puts it like this. He says, if you love me, show me by doing what I asked you. Now, why would, why would we show our love by our obedience? You know, this is not blind obedience out of fear. This is a loving obedience out of trust. And I ask my kids this, oh, if you love me, will you obey me in this? Because dad has good things for you. My heart is for you. I'm not telling you not to do it because I, I want to ruin your fun. It's because I love you. I don't want you to get hurt. So God asks us to obey. He put the tree of knowledge there, and he told us not to eat from it. Now this begs a very simple question. Why did you put the tree there? If you just left it out, we'd be in a much better place right now. There'd be no sin. There'd be no shame. I mean, why did you even have to put the tree there by the very chance that someone slips and bites into something? Like, just, just leave it. Why even give us the option of choosing against you? John 1.4, we read, God is love. God is the author of love, and God knows all about love, and he knows something that when I say it, you will, you will know it's true. God knows that love without choice is not actually love at all. That love without choice is not actually love. You see, true love is a choice well beyond a feeling. This is a beautiful and wonderful truth. But it's also very hard and, and difficult for us at times. Have you, ever, have you ever loved somebody and you wanted them to love you back and they didn't? Have you ever been in that place where you're like, oh, I, if they only knew. I made up a mixtape, if that even exists. I, I, uh, I once cross-stitched. I sewed something for a girl in fifth grade. It didn't work out. I'm shocked. I just don't sew at fifth grade. Yeah, so I, I, I wanted, I just, oh, would you, if they only knew how much I loved them, they would, they would just love me back. Okay, have you ever wanted someone to love you so much and they just wouldn't? What if you had a remote? You could just click and they would just love you. Wouldn't that be awesome? Finally, you, finally you figured it out how great I am. You know, there was a moment in my life where I was so deeply betrayed by someone who said they loved me the most. I was so deeply betrayed that in my woundedness, I prayed, God, would you change their heart and make them love me? Would you just change their heart, God? But God never forced them to love me. God doesn't force love. And if he had forced them to love me, would that actually have been love? If you had the remote to, to cause someone to fall in love with you, and you, would that be love? They didn't choose to love you. You know, science is creating these robotic humanoids that, that today they can do almost anything and everything needed so that you feel loved. Everything. But at the end of the day, it's just a program. It's just a program. And see, if love is forced, it's just a program. God could have left the option out of there. He could have left the option out of it. And guess what? It would have been like the matrix, us just going through life, choosing all the time the only choice we have, and that would not have been real love. But God, in his great wisdom and love for us, gave us a choice. He always gives us a choice. 
Because true love chooses. He wants us to choose him. We could love God and go on his path, or we could love ourselves and choose sin. And we know which way we chose, right? We chose sin. We chose ourselves. We ate from the one tree God told us not to, and sin entered the world. And even now, we see the evidence of this. We can't deny it. We live in a fallen world where disasters happen and, and, good, and bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. And we live in a world that doesn't seem fair. People continually have the choice to love God or not. And that's why if you turn on the news or you open a newspaper, you have all the evidence you need that people are still choosing their own path, still choosing to love themselves and their own appetites more than choosing God's path. When we choose to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge, innocence was stolen from us, sin entered, and with it, for the first time, humanity felt the affliction of shame. Adam and Eve hid because they were awakened to the shame of their decision. They covered themselves because their innocence was lost. And so what happened next? An animal, they were killed to cover their guilt. It was the first shedding of blood. Blood was shed so that shame could be covered. You'll hear that theme a lot. Blood was shed so shame could be covered. And from this moment on, throughout history, sin has been a constant travel companion with each of us as it leads to selfishness and shame. In the days of the Old Testament, there was a system of sacrifices that would atone for the sin of the people. There was blood that was shed to cover their sin and shame. But this was a temporary band-aid on a fatal wound. It wasn't permanent and it wasn't sustainable. And, and what about this tree of life, this other tree over here? This glorious tree that if you eat from it, it gives you life and life to the full. Well, it was there in the garden with the tree of knowledge. But when we chose sin, when we chose selfishness, the tree of life was lost to us. It was relocated and it's, it's been planted in the same place ever since. It says this in Revelation, To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life and paradise with God. Blessed are those who have been cleansed. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit of the tree of life. So it waits, ripe and ready for us to enter through the gates of eternity because of Jesus. And so we have these two trees, one that caused spiritual death and one that calls us to spiritual life. In Orchard, we live between these two trees. This is where we live. We deal with the results and the fallout of this tree right here every day in our life. We deal with our selfishness and our sin and the consequences of what we choose and what others choose that hurts us. And we hope, hold out hope of this other tree, this tree of life that's out there that calls us heavenward to goodness. The effects of sin was actually much worse than we first thought. I'm going to say something else that's hard. Only perfect people can go to heaven. Only perfect people can ever partake of the tree of life. Only perfect people. Which meant that because of our selfishness, because of our pride, the decisions that we've made in the past and the decisions we'll make in the future, the path to heaven was impassable. It was blocked. And the temporary sacrifice system of the Old Testament didn't solve it. And the Ten Commandments and the law came along and all those religious laws proved is that we can't keep them all. It just reiterated the fact I can't behave myself from here to there. 
I, I can never help enough old people across the street. I can never do enough good deeds. The spiritual star chart, I can't fill it out enough to ever get myself to the tree of life. The pathway's been blocked. Something had to be done. Somehow there had to be a pathway to, to the first tree, to, to, to the second tree, to paradise, to God's presence. If you could imagine right here a great chasm separating these two that is so large that no human could ever be religious enough to do it. Oh, but we try, don't we? Oh, we do penance and we work and, or, or, we, or we jettison organized religion for, for something else that just feels good and natural. I'm going to try it out and we try whatever we can anything to get me from where I know I am to where I, I want to be someday. And we rename it. Oh, let's rename it something nirvana, this, uh, uh, reabsorbed in the energy, but I got to do something to get there. Let me just tell you something. We cannot behave ourselves into that. The chasm is too great. This is the power of the cross. This is the glory of the cross of Christ. In his manifold love, God loved you so much that he gave his son to spread his arms and give his life to provide a way for imperfect people to be forgiven into perfection and enter the Father's glory. You see, a life was required to atone for my life and your life. A life was required. Because of our sinfulness, a sinless life is necessary but I don't have a sinless life. I don't know if you do either. And on the cross, a life was given so that I don't have to. On the cross, a life was given so that you don't have to. Blood was shed to cover sin and shame once and for all with no other sacrifice ever needed. It's done. And at the cross... Sin was defeated. In faith in Jesus, sin no longer defines my existence and it no longer has to define your eternal destiny. On the cross, shame was defeated. Jesus hung on the cross and took all of our shame upon himself so that you don't have to, have to, have to bear that. On the cross, death was defeated. Death no longer gets the last word in your life. At the cross, true love was revealed, and it was victorious. The cross is a reality, but it's also a symbol, a symbol of love. John 3.16, we know it. For God so loved you that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in Jesus would not perish but have eternal life. Jesus, motivated by love, died for you and your sin. He died for your redemption so that you could have what you could never earn. Romans 5.8 says that God showed his great love for us by sending Jesus to die to us while we were still sinners. You don't, you, listen, you don't get clean enough in your life, in your spiritual life, and then go to Jesus. You, you don't take a shower to go take a bath. Well, you come to Jesus in, in everything that you truly are. You come to him and you let him do his work in you. While we were still sinners, he moved. Not when we cleaned ourselves up. God reveals his great love, and the cross also stands as a challenge for how we should love others. It's an example of love from God, but also an example of how we should love others. Jesus was mocked, ridiculed, tortured, but through it all, he never lashed out in anger. 
He prayed for his enemies. He prayed that God would forgive his murderers. And because of the cross, we are challenged to let go of our bitterness toward others and to love them with a love like we have been shown. Sacrificial, forgiving. The cross is a symbol of payment. You see, our debt of sin and selfishness kept us from God's presence. But Colossians 2 says, we were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature. It was not removed. Then God made you alive in Christ and he forgave your sins. He canceled the record of debts and charges against you and took it away. By what? By nailing it to a cross. That any charge, any eternal or spiritual or any charge brought against you from anywhere, he nailed to the cross with his son. He bared it so you don't have to. He paid a debt that you don't have to pay. It's a symbol of defeat, right? The enemy won, they killed the Son of God. But in this defeat, it's a symbol of victory. You see, in, at the cross, it was the enemy who was defeated. Because Jesus didn't stay on the cross, and he didn't stay in the grave either. He resurrected with the keys of death in his hand and overcame it for us. And it says this in 1 John 3, 8, The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. That there is an evil at work and that Jesus came to fight it and to destroy it. That's why us loving God and loving people is powerful. We're working against the enemy. 1 Corinthians 15 puts it very poetically. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death. And the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord and Jesus, through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The cross is a symbol of shame. In, in the culture where crosses were used, they hung criminals up there for doing ugly things, terrible things. It was, it was suffering and torture and pain, and the only reprieve was death. It was such a public humiliation, like a, a giant red flag in front of your whole community. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. And Jesus took our shame. He took our shame upon himself so that you would never have to have it upon you. Romans 8.1 says this, Because of the cross, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is some incredibly good news. That because of Jesus taking our sin, I don't have to live in shame anymore. In the beginning, God and humanity lived in harmony and peace with no sin and no shame. But out of our selfishness, we chose the tree of knowledge. In our selfishness, we chose sin. The tree of life was removed, no longer accessible, heaven closed. Heaven is for perfect people, not sinners. There was no permanent path to God, no way for us, no religion good enough to get to God. But the cross declares through the ages that heaven is open to those who come to Jesus. Between two trees, one in Genesis, one in Revelation, stands the cross. The pathway between us and the God that calls us home. From fall to glory. The cross stands as our answer. The cross loom large, looms large in history. It's a beacon of hope to those who have tried it their own way. 
And today there are some of you here who have been trying it your own way. You have your own little uh, buffet style of, of religious beliefs that you have. You get to choose what you like. And I just want to ask, how's it working out for you? How's it working out? The cross is a beacon of hope for those who have tried it on our own. And I found out we came up lacking. The cross is a lighthouse of grace for those who find themselves shipwrecked in their sinful addictions and bad decisions. And for some of us here today, we find ourselves washed up from bad decisions that we've made or that were made against us. We find ourselves washed up by the addictions and vices that have gotten their hold on us. And we'd say we'd stop, but we know we can't. The cross is a lighthouse of grace and change that calls people, come find transformation, come find forgiveness, and come find new life. What if the greatest years of your life were still ahead of you? The cross calls you to that. The cross is like a flare in the dark, giving us a place to rally for redemption. It stands alone in its gory glory. That on the cross, this revolutionary rabbi of love had sin and shame of humanity dogpiled upon him. And he came through the other side as white as snow, with holy scars and an invitation for you to come. Come to me, all you who are weary. Come to me for forgiveness. Come to me for redemption. Come to me for new life. The offer of Jesus isn't just heaven someday. The offer of Jesus is forgiveness in your past. It's peace in your present. And it's hope for your future. Your tomorrow future, not just someday. Thank God for the cross. We're going to look at a lot of things in this series. And my prayer for us is that we would say, Jesus, show me more about the cross, that I can know who you are and what it means in my life. And I know that today there are people in this room who are not resolved on Jesus. And I, and I can't get through this teaching without just offering this prayer. If you're in here today and, and something within you wants to pray to say, I want Jesus, I want to pray. I want to receive him into my heart as my Savior. I need this hope. I need this freedom. I need this forgiveness. I want you to pray with me. So let's all pray together. Jesus, I need you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that you rose again. I give you my life. Give me your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. As we go into communion, I want to remind you that here in this place, we have an open table, which means there's no class to take. Jesus said, come and do this in remembrance of me. And so that's you. And as you come and grab the elements of communion, I want you to sit there and I want you to look at this huge 24-foot cross. And remember that this, this, this sterile juice and cracker that we hold is actually the symbol of the blood that was shed for you upon it. And the broken body that was broken for you upon the cross. The ultimate act of love. The ultimate I love you. And for some of us, we need prayer today. We have a whole corner in the back over there. If you have prayer requests, feel free to go back over there. We have some people at the front as well. But let us see God do his business in us. Let's be open to saying yes to whatever he would have. Amen? Amen. Let's worship.